0: Hey there! The Podcrush team is off this week, uh, but we do have something that might be might be adjacent, near and dear to your heart. We have Dua Lipa. Unfortunately, not on Podcrush, but I was on her podcast at your service. Uh, it was a, from what I recall, I loved this conversation. I did have a broken toe at the time, which we go into a little bit. Um, I don't remember if we if we if we tell the story why because it's a, it's an incredible tale. It's unbelievable, really. If you love Podcrush. If you love Dua Lipa, you're going to freak the F out with this episode. Enjoy.
1: Just to let you know, this episode does contain some strong language. If that's not for you right now, there are plenty of other episodes of At Your Service that you can listen to on BBC Sounds or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of Do It Lipa at your service. When people talk about Penn Badgley, it's probably in the context of his two most iconic roles. Dan Humphrey on the classic teen soap series Gossip Girl.
0: Whatever it is you're planning to do, is it worth it or are you going to walk out the door with me right now?
1: Or the murderous Joe Goldberg on the hit Netflix show
0: You. You dig into my past! You dissect my life, you paint me out to be this monster, this, this, someone someone who could hurt people, who could do terrible things, but who is the monster here? Really, who?
1: How do you go about defining yourself when people think they know who you are? For Penn, there's his faith, fatherhood, and his firm belief that although the entertainment business is where he clocks in for work, there's more beyond the screen to consider when it comes to picking roles and promoting projects. I loved this conversation with Penn, touching on everything from his lightning-struck-twice Hollywood career to the way he's able to keep himself grounded and growing outside the confines of his work. I especially loved bonding over the power we've both found in saying no, a lesson more of us could use in our everyday lives. Is one of the most interesting and reflective people I've gotten the chance to speak with on this podcast series, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get right into it with this week's very special guest, Pen Badgley. Hi, Pen. Hey, Dua. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm really good. I think I broke my toe this morning.
1: Broke your toe?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: What happened? Well,
0: I stubbed my toe while I was uh, feeding my my youngest, and oh, I, so no. I, I shattered it years ago.
1: And there's nothing you can really quite do about toes. No, you just have yeah, to...
0: that's what I learned.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully this won't be as painful as stubbing your toe. Yeah, I'm hoping not to shatter you emotionally. <laughs> with this.
0: <laughs> you just shatter expectations. Maybe that would be good.
1: Pen, I'm a big fan of your work. And you've played two huge beloved TV characters, both of which you've talked about having quite a complex relationship with. And I'm really interested in how you yourself see yourself as an actor. And how do you sell yourself in an audition?
0: (laughs) So auditioning has always been very painful. To me, it feels like it's not representative of what we do. There is something about it that is so removed from the process Mm. Of either the craft or even being on set, I just hate them. I don't think I audition well. I've th- believed that I was going to get. I think three times I thought I'm going to get that, and two times I got it. And and I'm at a point now where I get offers for things that don't interest me, and then things that I really want are like a you know something really huge,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where I know that it's less of an audition process than it is some huge name if it's not me is going to be getting it you know and that's connected to how do i see myself as an actor i mean that question <sighs> i for the longest time even now i don't feel comfortable calling myself an artist even though that's very much what i yeah of course grew up as and what i am but yeah. you know the as you're well aware the the business of it can man it can just really not just complicate things it can take away the very reasons you started. Mm. And I've been doing it for so long professionally. I mean, 25 years, something like that. I was 12 when I was professional, you know, when Gosh. I was like working. So my relationship to it, you know, I'm just being transparent is like, I feel like I'm just reclaiming after a very long time. Something of the essence of what it is to do this, but at this level and with this kind of visibility and in the kind of projects that I'm in, you know.
1: I'd love to hear you describe your character Joe Goldberg <laughs> from your very successful Netflix show You like how do you live such a twisted role?
0: Hmm you know as an actor I think your job is between action and cut you are only present with the job at hand but all the other times all this stuff how many people are watching what they think of it what they, it's, it's hard not to have that filter through you know mm-hmm. so for me I've always obviously leaned into Joe is like a terrible person because the whole conceit of the show is for us to lure you into loving him, you know? And if you love him too much for too long without any scrutiny, I think it becomes problematic. I think we all at the show knew that because he's Mm -hmm. he's a murderer. He's an abuser. He's a manipulator. Mm. I think the real world version of Joe would be such a disgusting thing to watch. The reality of a of a master manipulator and an abuser, a a predator and a murderer, I mean that's like Yeah, it's all the it's all the worst possible things. <laughs> but then, you know, we're sort of selectively showing you the moments and the parts of him that are very romantic, I guess.
1: Yeah, almost endearing.
0: Yeah, right.
1: I also read that you enjoy taking roles that subvert expectations and challenge stereotypes. Tell me a bit more about that. Like, I'd love to know more.
0: I mean, I would like to take those roles. I don't know that I always have the opportunity to. I mean, I really feel like the two things that I'm really known for are, are this show, You. Mm-hmm. My show, You, in case it's a confusing pronoun to be, or <laughs> name for the show. And Gossip Girl. And I've been working for a long time, so I've done a lot else. But those are the things I'm known for. And I think it's interesting that you, that you say that about subverting expectations, because... I think maybe that's what I do in, in life, but I don't know that that's what I've done in my roles until until Joe Goldberg. I mean, that's been an opportunity in a way for me to almost like have a satire on the rest of my career before him. Because I'm playing the same kind of guy I always have. He's just now this time a murderer, like in secret.
1: Mm. I also like saw that you once said that Joe's like the meta progression of yeah. Dan Humphrey.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I don't even know how much we saw that in the beginning, but it's worked out that way. And we've, and we've leaned into that, and I've certainly leaned into that.
1: I also saw this quite funny video online of some of your scenes in You, and it's like with Joe's internal monologues taken out. And it hadn't occurred to me until I, I saw that, that I guess it must be quite a difficult role to play. Was that part of the appeal of the role, to do something quite technically different?
0: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, the show is called You, and it's about, at least from my perspective, me. We've been in a different city every season, and I'm usually the only person left over. There's a a few crew members, maybe, but like, so, you know, it's very interesting and different to be truly that central to the whole apparatus, to the whole premise. And, And it is quite technical. I mean, I spend most of my time on set, like, I don't speak... All of my lines are in um, the vocal booth, you know. So Mm -hmm. actually this kind of environment is really familiar to me. I would bet you that 85% of my lines, if not more, are in the vocal booth. So I spend so much time on set just being quiet and watching. And it requires, it's a very different kind of preparation, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm not memorizing lines. I'm just really trying to stay present and listen to all the other people. So I think for other actors coming on, it's a very different experience. They come on and they... (laughs) <laughs> they, they, they don't realize how little I'm going to respond to them with my mouth. <laughs> of course, I'm responding constantly with my with my with eyes, I guess. But it's very different for them. And they're always, you know, depending on the way they work, it can be very jarring and difficult or they kind of, usually within like a few days, everybody's got it. And,
1: and you do the voiceover before you film, right? Usually, so but always... of course there's,
0: okay. you know, it's like, it's like you, we have to do pickups and stuff, but most of the time I've, I've done it beforehand. But I, I, to be honest, I'm not keeping it in mind. I don't keep them in mind. I don't okay. think of them together. I, it actually is like two separate jobs, and it keeps working like a really happy accident. And I don't want to mess with that, because I guess it works.
1: It works really seamlessly. Let's talk about Gossip Girl. You know, that was a pop culture phenomenon. And it's also what made you famous and really in demand at a really young age at a time when, I guess, most other people are are still finding and defining themselves. Like, when did you actually have the time to, like, find yourself?
0: I think it was in the years after Gossip Girl, actually. I was doing some of that. Towards the end of the show, I was in between seasons trying to fit that kind of experience in but there's not a lot of time for it mm. i mean i had a band you know i had a band and was mm-hmm. playing music which as an actor like i am hesitant to say because actor bands really like god bless all the actors making music <laughs> but <laughs> but it's uh it's a thing and i was conscious of that and so i was really trying to do something different in the way that the project was but anyway i did have like a little bit of a teenage experience i grew my hair out for the first time since i'd been a teenager. I was considering turning away from film and TV entirely. I did like a series of independent movies that I really loved, but just kind of didn't really do much. They were, they became frustrated in the editing process and all this stuff. So I wasn't ever just like doing nothing and taking time off, but I'd stepped away from television. And I was I was really seeking and really questioning everything to make sure that I could do it if and when I would return, mm. you know? It's funny that the last time that period kind of came to a close with a broken toe, I shattered my toe, what was it, probably eight years ago, and I have just done it again this morning, and I've been thinking about that. <laughs> just I really the like the parallel. Of, yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying that anything similar is happening now. I mean, it's not that it's not. I'm always seeking, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, it was definitely a long time ago. You touched a little bit on
1: your spirituality, And I guess in recent years, you've been so open about your journey with spirituality and faith. Yeah. How has that aspect of your life influenced your approach to your career and your personal growth and informed the decisions that came next?
0: In every way. It really depends on your perspective, I guess, like the way we think about faith and spirituality. For instance, if you're an atheist or a very modern, like kind of agnostic anti-religious person, which, by the way, I was many years ago. The idea of faith, like, I get why people kind of hate the the notion. I can totally empathize with that. From that perspective, it's sort of like, no, oh, it's, a, it's a choice. It's a part of my da-da-da. For me, it's not that. For me, I experienced in coming into the Baha'i faith, like, a total Phoenix experience where I was really at my lowest low and um, it now it's sort of like the the metaphor I'm thinking of is like I went to the mountaintop and then brought the mountaintop back to my life so for instance if I hadn't made my faith a foundation of my existence and my perspective and informing everything that I do I actually think I wouldn't have been able to continue acting because I had become so cynical about the business of it not the art of it but the business of it I mean when I do press now, I mean I do a lot of press. Yeah. <laughs> like this last press cycle. I was friggin' everywhere, I feel like. I mean I was. it was it was exhausting. It was like two months of actually kinda of like real work. Yeah. My faith informs that. Like I try to go into everything wanting to elevate the conversation around the work that i'm doing you know like i try to answer as i'm doing here i mean sometimes it's a fault because i'll go on too long or too dryly but it's you know i'm trying to be authentic i i don't want to be rote i don't want to be like just giving the same answer on repeat and so yeah my faith is just it 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 underwrites everything that i do
1: how did you find yourself in the Bahá'í faith how did that how did that come about
0: i was traveling in colombia in the Teyrona National Rainforest, like reserve. Mm -hmm. I was trying to sort of study with this tribe called the Kogi tribe, which is uh, the largest pre-Columbian civilization that's intact now. And um, they have a deep mythology and spiritual framework that many people around the world recognize as being sophisticated and deep and authentic. I was exploring a lot of indigenous cultures and practices and thinking about connection to spirituality through that, I thought, if this culture is uh, seemingly so toxic that it's hard for me to be in it right now, well, where do I go? What do I do? And what's my history? Where Where do I fit in all of that? In that rainforest, staying with a Kogi, I met a Baha'i, and and we didn't. I didn't try to stay in touch with this man at all. We would run into each other over the years. He was always saying things I was really into, but then I'd be like, what are you talking about? bro? Like, What <laughs> on earth? And essentially what we were always talking about was like, how does my own kind of emotional and spiritual transformation and growth connect to that of the world, connect to the society? Because it's a little bit like my pragmatic and social and political mind at the time. I was very interested in my growth, but like if it didn't also connect to like the growth of society I felt like it was maybe a little bit too like a lot of navel gazing you know gazing at your navel can be great you can get like a stretch in the back of your neck (laughs) you can do it for some time and it's okay yeah right
1: yeah
0: but past a certain point like how is this helping the larger picture you know and so for me it was essentially the profound way that that Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, is linking personal growth with social transformation. Mm.
1: When I think about personal growth, I I also know that there was quite a bit of commotion recently over your decision to ask the <laughs> yeah. showrunner uh. to omit explicit sex scenes from the show in its most recent season. What did that conversation actually look like and how much of a journey has something like that been for you to be able to give, you know, creative feedback to the writers and showrunners and, and to actually get listened to?
0: Well, I certainly never felt comfortable asking for something like that before now, and I didn't even feel comfortable doing it when I did it, by the way. I still wouldn't feel comfortable, <laughs> you know, just outright asking for it. I did, You know, to be clear, I never asked outright, I'm looking at a scene now, let's remove it. After being pitched the arc for season four, I thought, well, this is great, because it sounds like, for the first entire half of the season, Joe's basically not having sex with anybody anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and tell the showrunner, Sarah Gamble, just where I'm at and see what her response is. And my request was I know that to ask for 0% would be in a way like disingenuous and unfair to her because it's a part of the show. Right. You know, she was immediately very responsive and fair. I mean, for better or worse, in the entertainment industry, the conversation around consent and boundaries is at least very like uh, sensitive and magnified. So even though I don't think like the structures of our industry have changed yet, people at least are really thinking about it. And I thought this is just something that I'm gonna have to say to somebody sooner or later. Might as well start now yeah. and see how it goes. So you know, again, my request was like I'm not asking for none. I'm just asking for less, and the creative suggestion was, you know, let's just make sure it's necessary. Yeah. I'll do it if it's necessary.
1: It's really interesting because it it made me think a lot about how when you're an actor, and especially when you're starting out, that you have to do what you're told in the beginning to be able to yeah. progress. And I guess in, in music, when I think about it, to be seen in a certain way, in my experience, at the beginning, you kind of have to say no to certain things.
0: Sure, yeah. Because yeah. I
1: feel like with each thing that I decide to do, it defines... Me. So for me, I guess as time went on, then I kind of started saying yes to things later down the line. Like at the beginning of my career, like I wouldn't do, for example, a certain campaign, because I'd be like, oh, I don't want to be seen as a model. And mm. so I would, you know, I'd say a no to a lot of things to try and be seen as a musician. And I guess now that people know me a little different, then I'm more open uh to so much more. And it's it's really interesting to see
0: kind of inverse.
1: Yeah, it is really like the, the yeah. inverse, but it must be such a freeing and and good feeling to be able to set those boundaries, you know, for you to, to, to have a say in your, you know, and have some creative control as well, a little bit, and...
0: Yeah. 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 It really comes down to something very simple that I think a lot of people in this conversation around it have missed. I do have feelings and thoughts about, like, the creative worth of explicit sex scenes, but That's not even what this is about. This is like, you cannot simulate a physical touch.
1: Mm.
0: You simulate murder. You simulate all of these things. There was some, I think, criticism of me, which I understand, which is like, well, you know, don't want to represent sex, but you want to represent violence. It's like, no, no. That's (laughs) actually not not at all what I've said. That's not what this is about. Like, when I'm killing somebody on camera, they're alive. When I'm kissing somebody on camera, we are kissing. There's no way around that. Mm -hmm. There are very few people who know what it's like to have to do that professionally there's yeah. there's very very few people and it's a very significant decision to have that included in your work and you really don't think about that much as a young actor
1: yeah i mean no is very powerful once you once you learn to put that boundary up and you say no to everything
0: <laughs> that's great we'll be right
1: back I love asking fellow creative people this, especially as I'm now like constantly thinking about myself with endeavors like this podcast. And of course, you have your own podcast, uh, the brilliant pod crushed. Thank you. <laughs> what keeps you ticking, you know, creatively and otherwise?
0: So I will say again, my, my spiritual practice, like it underwrites everything. It has to have, I remember when you came out with this podcast, I was really impressed and appreciative that you were, you know, trying to center the spirit of service in this, because that's, I think, what keeps me ticking is the spirit of service. That is the, that is like the spirit of humanity. I think that is the Mm -hmm. spirit of the age. We are at an unprecedented point on planet earth we are a global population interconnected and interdependent in a way that we never have been we're in a, a huge crossroads for our global population and the planet and and all life on earth it's a really important time to me what i do artistically has to be connected to that in some some way somehow and maybe that way that it's connected for me is is really, like, implicit. You wouldn't immediately think that the show You and playing Joe Goldberg would be directly connected to any of that, right? But the way that we've been able to take the conversation about toxic misconceptions of love in media, all the bad love stories we've been sold over the years and therefore kind of harming our own relationships, and then also, you know, like, male dominance, toxic masculinity, male violence, all these things, these things matter, you know? And so that is where I derive all of my excitement about the project that I'm currently on, you know? And the things that I'm developing as a producer and a writer and a director, the spirit of service keeps me going in all of these things. It's like, it has to be about that in some meaningful way. Some people have the experience as a professional artist where they've always been able to Choose a film for the director and work in things that they want. That that happens sometimes, mm-hmm. you know. I think far more often, you have something like I've had, which is you work to work. You, like you 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 know you can't always make choices that you want to make, and it would be dishonest if I actually said that you know my love for the craft and the, my love for every project I've done has, is what has kept me going because it because it actually hasn't and and that's why I've questioned <laughs> questioned it a lot along the way and I think that it's fine to be transparent about that you know I, I, like what I don't love to do I mean you see it a lot with actors where like they're on a press tour and being asked about like so what so what drew you to this project you know <laughs> and it's like oh. Like, what do you you mean what drew me to this project? I needed to work because my monthly expenses are so high at this point. (laughs) I mean, like, what drew me to um, the fantastic world of Pets 3 uh, to play the animated (laughs) dolphin? Um, Let me tell you. Let me think. uh, Entertainment Tonight reporter who, (laughs) you know, I don't know at all. I try to be honest about what drew me to something but not dishonest about, like, kind of where it sits in my perspective. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, in all that, who fucking cares? Probably. <laughs> who, who actually cares about that part of it? I hope my cynicism feels like it's appropriately marked by a real love for all of this and a love for people. But I but I do think a lot of this is so kind of absurd.
1: Yeah. It, it seems like you've got quite a good separation between, like, fame and real life, and yeah. it sounds like you've Trying. done a I lot tried. of good work to have that separation and it really I, I guess it's what makes you so grounded in in the industry and in your craft and in all the other you know creative endeavors and stuff that you that you want to do but you have just embarked on your most exciting role ever and that is your dad yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I'd, <laughs> I'd love to know the ways you know fatherhood has impacted you and and you know what are some of the ways that it's helped you see the world.
0: Brilliant segue, by the way. It is the it is the, <laughs> it's my most significant role. <laughs> I have a stepson and a biological son. And the reason I say that is because my stepson is much older. I've been around since he was five. He's now 14. He's going to be going into high school this coming fall. So I've known a certain kind of parental role, mm-hmm. but it's very much not fatherhood, really. His dad is very much in the picture. We've all worked to maintain that. And I really love that and appreciate that for what it is. So it's its own thing entirely, in a way. My biological son, who's two and a half, I mean, that, honestly, like seeing somebody from the first moment is very interesting. Do you know that there's the Khalil Gibran quote, something along the lines of, your children are not your own. This is an old quote from the book The Prophet. It didn't occur to me until months after I had had my son that I thought, Oh, yeah, I don't at all feel like I own him or he's mine. What it's really been like is just witnessing somebody be from the first moment of their life. And that's crazy. Because then these spiritual questions of, like, what are we doing on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. Is is there a purpose to life? How did we get here? What are we doing here? What is human nature truly all of these questions you cannot help but be thinking about them. You're like, wow, this is how we all get here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally the moment he was placed on my wife's chest, that's a crazy moment. Mm. That is a crazy crazy moment. By the way, what a lot of people don't ever realize or tell you about, babies are like blue and gray when they come out because they've not been exposed to oxygen. Yeah,
1: and, and don't they've their been heads compressed come out like yeah. really long. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, they can. They can come out really, really like strangely shaped. I mean, they look very alien in a way. Mm. And they look like they came from somewhere else. And by the way, they did. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. like, <laughs> they they did. Nine months before that, they didn't exist. Then they did, but you couldn't see them. Suddenly they're here, and it's like, there's this little being. Who's this little being? I didn't make that. Did I do any of that? Yeah. No way. <laughs> and it's so clear, too, from their eyes the first moment that there is so much going on, you know? And my belief in the soul gives me an understanding where I'm not just here to like put knowledge in his brain and make him who he is. He already is who he is. I'm just here to help kind of prune prune the edges so that like not too much sort of dead things happen along the way or just that even feels maybe more hands-on. I don't know. I mean, parents do a lot, and I think you really have to discipline and raise kids in a way that's, coherent and sound but they're not yours it's Mm. so obvious
1: yeah yeah you kind of have to let let the kids have their own experiences and you just have to be there to guide them along the way in preparation actually for this conversation i read a lot of your post-fatherhood interviews Mm. where you've just spoken about how your attention is now tilting towards much bigger things than the entertainment industry and i was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that
0: I mean, it already had been. Some people seem to talk about parenthood, and I think you hear it a lot more from men, but probably all people. They talk about parenthood in a way where they're suddenly they're like, well, now that I have a daughter, like, I just see women so differently. Or now that I have a child, like, mm. I see people differently. Mm-hmm. I actually don't feel that way, to be honest. I already <laughs> had that transformation personally. So I'm not thinking, like, I need to build a better world for my son. That's still, I think, a form of self-centeredness. I want to do that, but it's not just for him. So what role do I actually have? What kind of social responsibility does one in my position actually have? I'm sure you think about this. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, your podcast, the newsletter, they all represent some kind of response. Like Mm -hmm. taking responsibility for some kind of social impact that we're aware that we have, not wanting to overestimate it, but not wanting to underestimate it and just kind of be right in the pocket. You know, I think about community. Now a lot. My job requires me to move constantly. Mm-hmm. You know what that's like. Oh yeah. We're of the age and of the profession where, when we think of community, we think of people who are all around the world. You know, we think of like a virtual community, and I'm not saying like remote Zoom kind of stuff. I'm talking like you know, you meet people all around the world. People in our position can live in New York, in Paris, in in LA, or Miami, in Berlin. In you know, you can kind of like you really. Can travel in London. You feel like you're. You feel like you're in similar places w- with Where? similar people, even for all the diversity that is there. Totally. And when you talk about community, often, I think the kind of community that is thought about less is like who literally lives right next to you, like who is that and mm. their family and the people around you. And you know, for instance, part of the framework of what I might call a Baha'i perspective is. That community is essential. Like, that community will never not be essential. That community in the generations to come is going to become more and more essential because the world is going to be going through such intense times. Mm. And my career is so large in some ways. Like, and I'm not even saying, oh, I'm so famous, oh, I'm so successful. I'm just, But it is. It's like, you know, there's billboards all around the world with my face on it at some point in time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, I travel all around the world for press. But what it doesn't allow me to take into account as much and actually has really clearly pulled me away from in the last five years in particular is, like, my immediate community and the role that I can and should play in that. And so mm-hmm. I think that's that's where my mind's at now, you know.
1: Yeah, I love that. Penn, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having this me. This has been so fun, and I, I've loved talking to you. I like to end my podcasts with a list for my guests. To someone on the start of their own journey in spirituality, what are five books, theories, or resources that you think they could start with?
0: The first one I would say that is like a portal to thinking of spirituality in a really pragmatic and social way is a book by Gabor Mate called The Myth of Normal. Phenomenal, because it just sort of helps us understand the concept of normal. It really is a myth. As a Baha'i, I I would have to recommend something by Baha'u'llah. That's a hard one because he wrote so much. I mean, so much, like the equivalent of 100 volumes. Wow. It's an ocean. I would say the gleanings from the writings of Baha'u'llah, which you can actually get for free online. Baha'i.org. I would say Baha'i.org is actually an incredible resource if you're interested in learning anything about the faith. It's 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 also not it's not an insular spiritual perspective. It's sort of it sheds light on like kind of all faiths, all religions. So there's that. What else? What else? Well, The Prophet, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. by Khalil Gibran, is a, is a great starting place as well. Because everybody's kind of at a different place. Like if you really haven't thought about any of this stuff, the book I just mentioned by Baha'u'llah might be a bit intense, <laughs> you know, okay. but then like the prophet by uh, Khalil Gibran might be a really great place to start. That's three. Five is a lot. The Bible, the Quran. That's... <laughs> yeah. I'm not not kidding.
1: Sometimes I think it's um, also important to try and read, you know, if you are interested in faith, to to read lots of different religious books and kind of yeah. understand spirituality as a...
0: Totally, as a totally. ...thing. So, yeah. You know. For Western people too, they really should read some of the Quran but you should also read the Bible for yourself. A lot of modern people haven't. Like, read some of it. Yeah. Like, it's helpful because it shapes the world we live in. And it, it shapes everything you've ever read in ways that you could better understand. Mm. And if you're making a decision about whether or not you feel spiritual or religious or anything, you should make an informed decision, you know? That's what I think.
1: Yeah. No, I, I agree with you.
0: Ooh, and you know what? There should be something about, like, science in there, too. Um. Oh! Oof! There's a book by... um. I don't think it would be right to call him a quantum physicist, but he involves quantum physics in there. It's called The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman. This is what I understand from it. He's illuminating how the real frontier of of physics is demonstrating that we can no longer claim that it is a scientific assumption that consciousness arises from matter. We must seriously rigorously scientifically investigate other processes at work it would be unscientific not to and the most brilliant physicists are coming to agree about this and there are plenty of brilliant physicists who will be philosophical about it and say that's preposterous but that's we have to admit that's philosophical not scientific Mm -hmm. so the case against reality by donald hoffman it's a great place
1: very cool thank you so much pen I really, yeah. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank no, you. this has been amazing. Hopefully your toe is feeling okay. And uh, we, we were yeah. able to take your mind
0: off it a little bit. You did take my mind off it, yeah.
1: Okay, good. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank
0: you. Bye.
1: See you, bye. Thanks again to Penn for his amazing insights about, well, everything. He really took our conversation in some fascinating directions and I'm I'm so grateful he did. Pen gave us an additional list for service95.com on his favorite 5 places in Brooklyn. And we'll also be dropping a few special video clips from the episode on service95 socials. So visit us there to see more of Pen and I in the next couple of days. This week on our Service 95 newsletter, you'll find an incredible Women's World Cup starter pack. It includes a guide to the key players you need to know, as well as accounts to follow, books to read, and even some podcasts to listen to. If you aren't already subscribed, you can do so for free on our website at service95.com. See you all next week. Bye.